0: Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the program, we welcome critical media literacy scholar Dr. Allison Butler. Allison joins us to discuss the recent fiasco at CNN regarding Don Lemon's sexist and ageist comments, as well as his non-apology apology. We'll also talk about the book Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, about their role in the opioid epidemic and their historic role in big pharma advertising. Later in the program, we welcome back another critical media literacy scholar, Dr. Nolan Higdon. Nolan joins the program to analyze and deconstruct Russiagate propaganda and why it persists in the light of even more evidence of its exaggeration and contrivance. An hour looking at current events and the recent past through a critical media literacy lens with Allison Butler I'm Nolan Higdon, all coming up on today's
1: Project
0: Censored show. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today, in this segment, we are delighted to welcome back to the program, Media scholar, Dr. Allison Butler. Allison Butler is a senior lecturer, director of undergraduate advising and director of the Media Literacy Certificate Program in the Department of Communication at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where she teaches courses on critical media literacy and representations of education in the media. Butler was the 2020-2021 recipient of the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences Outstanding Teacher Award. Butler co-directs the grassroots organization, Mass Media Literacy, where she develops and runs teacher trainings for the inclusion of critical media literacy in K-12 schools. She also serves as vice president on the board of the Media Freedom Foundation. That's the foundation that oversees us here at Project Censored. Allison holds a master's degree and Ph.D. from New York University and is the author of numerous articles and books on media literacy, including her latest, The Media and Me, A Guide to Critical Media Literacy for Young People that has 10 co-authors, as well as Educating Media Literacy, The Need for Teacher Education in Critical Media Literacy. Butler has been interviewed and appeared in several media outlets, including Project Censored Radio right here, NPR's Peace Talks Radio and The Point, and also has been featured in Ms. Magazine in USA Today. And Allison Butler, that is why we have the great occasion to welcome you back to the program today.
1: Thanks so much. I'm super excited to be here.
0: I am too, although we're probably not super excited for some of the reasons, but we're going to start our conversation by talking about CNN's latest fiasco and Don Lemon's sexist, ageist, patriarchal, misogynistic quips. You rang into action really quickly after Don Lemon's, let's say, off-color remarks about Nikki Haley entering the Republican Party presidential race, where he claimed she was, quote, past her prime, and then he continued to dig himself into a much, much deeper hole— followed by a non-apology apology, and we're fortunate that you and your critical media literacy skills were ready to capture it all. You have two absolutely amazing articles that I think are really great teaching tools. I hope Don Lemon reads them. The first was, no, Don, it's patriarchy that's past its prime. That was a February 17 article in Ms. Magazine, Subtitle, A Woman Past Her Prime Breaks Down Don Lemon's Sexist Remarks. So, Allison Butler, I'm going to let you tell the story because uh, you told it so well. Allison,
1: Thanks. Thanks so much. So I will begin with a little bit of a confession. I am not a morning news watcher. I am not a cable news watcher. But I was forwarded the video clip of Don Lemon saying to his co-hosts that While he was uncomfortable talking about age, a woman was past her prime. A woman was in her prime in her 20s, her 30s, maybe her 40s, and then past her prime. Uh, He did not want to take too much credit for this. He referred to it as a fact that could be Googled. So this got my lady brain, which is probably getting pretty darn close to past her prime as I'm edging closer and closer to the edge of those 40s to be a little bit upset, I think, <laughs> and to do what we do in critical media literacy and take these statements apart and to do what we do with through a feminist lens of critical media literacy and say, whoa, what's going on with how women are being talked about and, quite frankly, how women are being talked over? Because to his co-host's credits, they pushed back right away, viscerally pushed back right away and was like, what are you talking about? What are you saying? And then he did that thing where he just kind of kept talking over them. So here are some of the problems. Saying that a woman is past her prime between the 20s, 30s, and 40s is just kind of an age-old argument that connects a woman's worth to her age. And the immediate connection of a woman's worth to her age is her fertility, her ability to reproduce. That, in fact, if you look at the history of menopause, which is defined by men, it was Once a woman was no longer able to successfully procreate and reproduce, she was no longer worthwhile as a human being, that her value as a human being was pretty much done. Mm. There was, one can imagine, without having to think too hard, no women consulted in this. And in fact, interestingly enough, outside of Don Lemon's comment, there's been a lot of research lately and a lot of commentary lately on the role of menopause in. The uterine hosting population, people who are women, people who identify with the women, anyone with a uterus who lives long enough will go through menopause. And they're still pretty productive human beings after that. And so there's a lot going on trying to like debunk and demystify that. But what's easier is to just kind of box women into this age. The pushback against Don Lemon was fast and furious, and it certainly wasn't me. And I appreciate all the folks that pushed back. And I I will say that I did try and do what he suggested. I did Google, when is a woman in her prime? And the first couple pages of Google results, it was actually the first time in ages that I've had to go past page one, right? I was on like page three or four before I started getting into uncorroborated, non-scientific connections of a woman's worth to her age. The first few pages were the visceral response to Don Lemon. So there's that too. But when I did get to the stuff that was about connecting a woman's value to her age, it was a lot of clickbait. There's no doubt about that. But there were some sites that I did look at because I was curious, like if something is going to look like it makes a little bit more sense than the obvious glaring neon clickbait. What's it going to be saying? And the pages that I found were actually kind of interesting, problematic, but interesting. They were sort of um, collectives of people who were searching the internet for medical advice that they couldn't get from their doctors or they couldn't get from medical professionals. Now, there was no clarification about why they couldn't get it from their doctors or why they couldn't get it from medical professionals. So there could be very legit reasons, right? We can spend a lot of time on the internet looking for an answer that we really want to believe, even if that answer isn't truth. But it did get me thinking that what we also have in this sort of interconnected web of understanding or misunderstanding women and women's health and public health is the idea that we don't have reliable, easily accessible healthcare for so much of our population to either be very thoughtfully and carefully have their questions and their concerns and their fears addressed, or maybe even just to be accessible. And so therefore, it's super easy to go down the internet rabbit hole. I will also say that within 24 hours, Don Lemon apologized, but I also got upset with the apology because he used this very passive, very soft language about how he never intended to harm and he never intended to offend. And that was his language, that I did not intend to harm, I did not intend to offend. And my ire was raised again because, at least in my understanding, apologies aren't about intention. Apologies are declarative statements that an action was done wrong. It doesn't matter what you intended. It matters that you did hurt and you did offend. And that's what you apologize for. And as I said in my piece in USA Today, anybody who really wants to hurt and wants to offend, why apologize? That's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to hurt you. I wanted to offend you. We're good to go. Right. So it's not about intention. It's about the action that happened. And I think this is yet another form of patriarchy rearing its ugly head is it's it's it it is a little bit, I think it's verging on victim blaming. It's the women's problem for being offended. It's the women's problem for being hurt. So I wanted to call him out on the non apology, too.
0: There are so many parallel examples to what you just said particularly sexist remarks, remarks about women, whether it's about sexuality or women's dress making other people uncomfortable. And it's like, well, is that what's happening? Or are they just like women people in the world? Like, like, is it their fault that that's happening? Or is it the reaction that people are having to it that's not appropriate?
1: Right. And look, I want to make sure that this is front and center. I'm not a fan of Nikki Haley's politics. I'm not a fan of her positions. I will not vote for her. I don't agree with her on the things that matter to me as a human being, the things that matter to me as an educator. I don't agree with her views on education or immigration or abortion. But It's not important what she looks like, and it's not important how old she is. My understanding, my interpretation of her announcement of her candidacy was trying to set herself apart from truly the old guard, that we've got some significantly older white primarily white men in political office and her entree is to say that she is not that and i i will defend that even though i think it's it's sort of it's poli- not policy right but i'll defend it because it's something that so many women who enter into public positions have to start with they have to start with their appearance they have to start with their age they have to start with the fact that they are competent even with the shortcomings of being female. (laughs) So again, she's not going to get my vote, but I'm not going to vote for anybody based on their clothing choices or their physical appearance or their age.
0: And you point this out in the Ms. Magazine article, Alison Butler, you say Lemon's Google fact-checking faux pas was in response to Haley's call for mental competency tests for politicians over the age of 75 so this it, this is part of that story that you were just telling. You go on to say current politicians, including her former boss, former President Donald Trump, currently 76, if he wins the 2024 election, will be 78 on Election Day, are, quote, past their prime, to, to borrow a term, from Lemon. So that was part of this. That was part of Haley's announcement.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's— I think she's trying to do something. I'm not quite sure what she's trying to do, but I would say the one thing that she and I have in common is that we are both women and it is a thing that women have to do. And I'll say some of the comments that I've been getting and the outreach that I've been getting have just been so thoughtful and so generous. I've gotten emails from people whose gender I will not presume, but just saying, oh my gosh, this is what I've been thinking. This is what I've had to do in my job. This is what I've been thinking for so long. I'm 73 and people don't want to take me seriously, but I feel like I am in the prime of my life. I think what he said was more than a faux pas, but it's it's tone deaf. If if we're going to give him a break, let's say it's tone deaf. If we're going to give her a break, let's say it's tone deaf. I think it's way more than tone deaf. But just to put it in the space of tone deaf for a moment, people are clamoring for this tone deafness to go away. People have been hurt by it for generations.
0: And Alison Butler, this is basically, when you use that kind of terminology, we're talking about people's implicit biases, right? Yes. Which is something that's talked about in the Media and Me book, The Guide to Critical Media Literacy for Young People, the book that you co-authored. You know, it's very important that we unpack that. Empathy is another thing that is part of critical media literacy and reciprocity and certainly something that we all teach. You teach, certainly. So you were quick to take the absolutely ignorant remarks spewing from Don Lemon, This is a teachable moment, and the teacher in you really sprang into action here. And again, I think the non-apology, your article at USA Today, CNN's Don Lemon still gets it wrong. His non-apology for sexist comments is what not to do. That whole follow-up article, when this is you, don't do this again.
1: Yeah, like, look, I, I wish I could sit here and and spout all of this off and then also finish and say, and I'm a purist, and I'm perfect, and I've never made a mistake. Wouldn't that be fun, right? That's not the world we live in. That's not the world any of us live in. We do make mistakes. We do have implicit biases. We do have misunderstandings that can be presented as utter ignorance. Those of us whose jobs on some occasions are to speak spontaneously, to speak on the fly, to not be scripted. There is a difference, again, not to make excuses, but Nikki Haley had a prepared speech that one presumes had been vetted by many of her staff. I would guess that there are talking points on CNN, but not a script. It's a morning show. It's supposed to have that banter quality to it, right? Any of us that are doing that, we're going to stumble. We're going to stumble over our words. We're probably going to use too many ums and too many likes as we sort of think through what it is that we're trying to get across. But when we make those mistakes, not if, when we say something untoward, when we say something inappropriate... At least two things can happen. One, it can certainly reveal what we are thinking. It can also, in that vein, reveal what we don't know and have left to learn. And so the second thing is, what do we do about it? How about, I screwed up. I'm really sorry. I said that out loud, which also means that I thought it, and I need to do some work. Or or I guess you could also be the person that's like, yeah, I do believe it
0: yeah, no, I'm sorry it's it's an opportunity for reflection.
1: It's a teachable moment. And I think that's why it's so important when we think about this stuff and when we witness it that we do actually say something. But if we do genuinely believe that this can be teachable moments, then let's bring these to the classroom because you know what? Our students, this is what they're this is how they're learning to be in the world. And this is how they're learning to speak. And this is how they're learning to present themselves. And especially for those of us who teach college, who are sending our students, presumably sending our students off into the professional workforce at some point. Please use the classroom to make mistakes, to say, hey, wait a minute, I got a bad feeling about this or I'm nervous about this. Yes, let's use the walls of the classroom to say, let's say some, let's say some stuff. Let's, let's figure out what the problem is. You have a bad feeling or your feelings are hurt or something, or you want to express that you are scared or that you don't know something. A hundred percent. This is something that I say to my classes all the time. There's some point in our development where not knowing stuff is like so fun. It's so exciting. There's a whole world to explore. And then we get to some point where either a classroom has taught us or a family member or a random interaction on the street or somebody we hear on the mainstream news say something that shuts us down a little bit. Then suddenly not knowing stuff is bad, is scary, is a sign that we are somehow insignificant or stupid. I want my students to come into class not knowing stuff. I want to go into class not knowing stuff. And then we work on it together because there's so many things that can happen from that. One, we certainly can address in a safe space our own implicit biases. We can practice collaborative learning, we are always learning from each other, but we live in a world that is so focused on hyper individuality. And this is me on my own, pulling myself up by my bootstraps, needing no help from others, blah, blah, blah. No. How about we model collective learning? How about we model problem solving together? How about we model the idea that uncovering and unveiling this stuff is really hard?
0: but so important. And the kind of work that you do, Allison Butler is exactly that kind of work. I could not agree more. We've got to take a, a break here, uh, but I'd like to remind listeners that you are tuned to the project censored show on Pacifica radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're speaking with Professor Allison Butler, a senior lecturer, director of undergraduate advising, and director of the Media Literacy Certificate Program in the Department of Communications at University of Massachusetts Amherst. Allison Butler, so many things, an expert teacher and author of several different books. And also, she recently penned a couple of amazing articles about the fiasco at CNN with Don Lemon. No, Don, it's patriarchy that's past its prime for Ms. Magazine and also a follow-up to his non-apology over at USA Today. So we are delighted that Allison Butler's work has been reaching a broader audience. After this brief musical break, we're going to continue our conversation about critical media literacy and its significance, and we're even going to bring up a couple of other subjects around a book published not too, too long ago, Empire of Pain, about the Sacklers, the Sackler family, and opioid epidemic, and we'll weave through media literacy in that conversation as well. So stay with us. We'll be back after this brief musical break. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We are joined by media scholar Allison Butler, University of Massachusetts Amherst, author of several different books, including co-author most recently of The Media and Me, a guide to critical media literacy for young people. And just before the break, Allison Butler, we were actually talking about teaching media literacy, and one thing I guess we could, we could thank Don Lemon for these mishaps, quote unquote, not a mishap, but I think the problem isn't just the saying of it, it's the thinking of it, and you unpacked that really well for us just before the break there. So off air, you were sharing with me some of your insights about a book that we were winding around the connection to, to media literacy and, and its importance, and I'm, I'm happy to go in a, a number of different directions here. You were talking about Empire of Pain. The book about the Sackler family and the opioid crisis. Could you unpack some of that for us?
1: Mickey, as you know, I'm, in some ways, I'm kind of a one trick pony. Like, critical media literacy is my, is my world. So, I look at everything either through a critical media literacy lens or how we can help learn critical media literacy, like through this text, which is one of the reasons why I hopped on the Don Lemon comment so quickly. It's, to me, it was a way of framing absolutely implicit bias things that shouldn't be said, but it also reveals what somebody is thinking, or at least what the public figure of somebody is thinking, we don't know him as a private person. We only know him as a as a public figure. And what somebody is thinking, sure, it might be quiet and alone in their brain, but it's taught to them through our systems and through our structures. The system of patriarchy, the generations of sexism and misogyny. As a queer black man, I would presume, maybe I'm wrong, but I would presume the the years of implicit bias that he has been on the receiving end of. So in this kind of meandering way, whilst firing off these articles about Don Lemon, I was simultaneously finishing a book that you and I just talked about called Empire of Pain, which is on the history of the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma and their role, their absolutely leading role in the legal opioid epidemic in this country that has killed untold numbers of people, hundreds on a daily basis, and it's 100% legal. It's probably pretty easy for many of us, especially those of us who do not suffer from addictions, to kind of turn our nose up at street drugs. But what do you do when you've got this prescribed drug that is killing people? And so this book is brilliant. I remember reading his long-form article in The New Yorker a couple years ago. I was, I was very eager to read this book. And I will say that I always thought of, prior to reading this book, this is my own arc of learning here. And, and this is why I think that crit- my meandering way to get to why critical, literacy, critical media literacy matters is, is to my untrained, unknowledgeable brain. I very strongly put the Sacklers in the evil category when it comes to what they did with OxyContin and what they as a family absolutely did to this nation in terms of the opioid crisis, to the globe in terms of the opioid crisis. But there was also the part of me that wanted to say, things are complicated. Things are complex. Nothing is yes, no, black, white, good, bad. The Sacklers have done an incredible amount um, for art, like the fact that there's are so much Beautiful, priceless art that is accessible to the population through the Sackler galleries, through the Sackler um, museums, all this kind of stuff. Well, then I read this book and it traces the history of the Sacklers from the very, very beginning. And it turns out those gifts weren't that philanthropic. They gave money in little dribs and drabs over time that the museums were actually still suffering. They were so greedy to have their names on stuff. They had like the Sackler escalator in a museum because they wanted their names so attached to philanthropy. They funded medical schools. They funded scholarships at medical schools. There's beautiful art, but they did so with the utmost greed. And I was like, okay, okay, self, time to think about this a little. And that's where the critical media literacy comes in. We have to look at everything through these multidimensional lenses, like as, as multidimensional objects, there is not one way of looking at something. And critical media literacy can help us with that. Critical media literacy can also support us in the fact that it can be really hard to learn this stuff.
0: Indeed. And it, well, it's hard to, to accept in some ways without being cynical, being skeptical, a different element of that, and I know we, we've hit on that a number of different occasions and talks, but in this case, the greed, the corruption, the harm that was being done is still being done. That's the issue. And we live in a country where people have rotted in prison for selling weed. And here you have the biggest drug peddlers in the world running off to the bank getting away with this. Those folks are doing fine. Even if they 're getting fined, even if their name's getting dragged through the mud, et cetera, et cetera, that damage has been done they 've gotten their greed i mean it's it 's unsatiable, so I guess that 's some small way that they 're suffering i guess i don 't know but we only got a couple minutes left, and I want to t- do the media literacy angle here. One of the things that's so problematic about these drug-pushing big pharma companies is how much money they spend on advertising. The pharmaceutical industry in the United States spent $6.88 billion on direct-to-consumer advertising in 2021. Half that went to television. You cannot sit down and watch a television news program without being inundated. The ballooning budgets that, and monies is getting dumped into this it's propaganda. It's it's propaganda. So tell us, Allison Butler, how when they spend this kind of money on these ads, how does that maybe impact or affect the willingness or unwillingness of these same news media outlets to cover problematic families and businesses like the Sacklers and Purdue?
1: This is one of my favorite upsetting things, upsetting favorite things is that whole behind the scenes thing. You've got to look behind the scenes. The advertising, the marketing, what we see on the screen or hear or watch is is abhorrent. But let's also not forget the systems and the structures that put that in place. And again, I'll, I'll point to the Sacklers. One of the fascinating things about the beginning of the Sackler empire, when they were really just starting to make their millions and billions, is that they pretty much coined medical advertising. They had a company that worked in medical advertising specifically. The patriarch, one of the patriarchs, Arthur Sackler, secretly ran a second medical advertising corporation that he hired somebody to be the public face, the CEO. These two medical advertising companies were presented to the public as competing. So embodying capitalism, competition, He owned both of them. He profited from both of them. He had the medical advertising market. He made business cards for doctors that supported X drug, like whichever one. There were no doctors. They didn't exist. So it's like lies built upon lies, built upon secrets, built upon smoke and mirrors, like extend whatever metaphor you want. That's our work is that when you and I sit down to watch TV or a commercial comes on on the radio or we brush past something as we're looking at the newspaper, all of that is just so heavily weighted. It has so much baggage to it that goes back to, I mean, here we are in 2023, that goes back to the very beginning of the 20th century, one quarter page ad, right? So that's our work is to dig behind that and to say, this is problematic because it's peddling drugs to people like us who aren't hard scientists, but it's also problematic because the structure in the system of the business, before we even get to the advertisement, that business is lying to us and the structure in the system is set up in such a way to keep us fooled. That's our work is to undo those layers behind the scenes.
0: We've been speaking for this segment with Dr. Allison Butler, teaches at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and we've been talking about critical media literacy. We've been talking about Allison's two recent pieces about Don Lemon's remarks at CNN, sexist remarks. Allison has a piece at Ms. Magazine. No, Don, it's patriarchy that's past its prime. You have a follow-up piece at USA Today about Lemon's non-apology apology, and you are co-author of The Media and Media. It's a guide to critical media literacy for young people. So, Allison Butler, I always appreciate you taking time to come on the Project Censored show, and thank you, too, for talking with us about this really important book, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, and connecting it back to critical media literacy. Wherever you go, there it is. (laughs) We can't get away from it, and it's important, so... I want to thank you so much for for everything you do. Is there anything you want to share with our listeners about following your work or finding out more about what you do or Mass Media Lit or any of the other scores of amazing things that you're doing?
1: I'm pretty findable through the Project Censored webpage as well as UMass Amherst. If you've got stuff you want to talk about, if you want to bring any of these topics to your classroom, let me know. I'm based in Massachusetts. I'm more than happy to travel digitally or travel physically, right? The more that we can bring this into classrooms, the more that we can we can engage in this struggle collectively. Let's do it. Let's work against that isolation. Let's work against that hyper-individuality. Let's keep asking the questions. Let's see what we can learn together.
0: Viva Critical Media Literacy Education. Alison Butler, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Up next on the Project Censored show, we're going to bring back another Critical Media Literacy Scholar. Dr. Nolan Higdon will join us. We'll talk about shifting baselines, the Russiagate narrative, and much, much more. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we welcome back media scholar Dr. Nolan Higdon. He is a founding member of the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas, a Project Censored national judge, author, and university lecturer at Merrill College and the Education Department at University of California, Santa Cruz. Higdon's areas of concentration include podcasting, digital culture, news Media History and Propaganda, as well as Critical Media Literacy. All of Higdon's work is available at Substack. He is the author of The Anatomy of Fake News, a Critical News Literacy Education, Let's Agree to Disagree, a Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, and Critical Media Literacy, also The Media and Me, a Guide to Critical Media Literacy for Young People, as well as United States, A Distraction. Nolan and I have co-authored several books and many articles, and we certainly will be talking about some of those today. Higdon is also a regular source of expertise for CBS, NBC, The New York Times, and San Francisco Chronicle, among many other sources. Nolan Higdon, thank you so much for joining us again today on The Project Censored Show.
2: Thank you for having me back. A big hello to the Project Censored Universe.
0: You know, we're going to talk more media literacy here today, news media literacy, but we're also going to talk about propaganda, revisionist history, the role journalism plays in some of this. We did a recent article from Russiagate with Love. Corporate media spin and revisionist reporting on Russia's alleged meddling in the 2016 election continue. So we want to unpack some of this. We're going to look at the concept of shifting baselines and how the corporate media keep not pulling a mea culpa, but they keep going back and revising what's been going on with the Russiagate narrative since 2016. And that's something that you and I have written about and followed. In fact, only a little more than a month ago, you and I wrote another piece promoting falsehoods and marginalizing truth tellers. Washington Post revelations about Russiagate reporting failures typify legacy media failures let's start historically nolan let's talk a little bit about this maybe even define russiagate to begin with for our listeners and what it means and certainly also what you don't mean when we talk about this topic because like so many things in corporate media turns into a binary that if you say x it automatically means y even if you're not saying Y at all
2: russiagate like all good propaganda has some truth to it. But then those true stories are amplified with other hyperbolic, baseless tales that all get tied together and really confuses audience about what what is true and, and what is false. But essentially we know that Russia, like most nations with digital tools, are engaged in an information war. The US is a part of this as well. And North Korea and Israel and China and every other major nation you can think of is trying to use digital communications to shape their own population. And shape global interpretations of of their country as well. So, in that sense, Russia trying to participate in U.S. communications during the 2016 elections is, is not really a revelation so much. And there is evidence that people in Russia and the Russian government were were doing that. But here's the rub: the minuscule content that Russia was developing during that time period as it's since been cited as the reason for things like Donald Trump's ascension to the top of the Republican Party. It's been credited with the defeat of Hillary Clinton. It's been credited with all of the Trump-era policies. And it, it sparked this media moral panic or freakout where Russia was behind everything that was bad with society. And it also proved quite lucrative. Those who spread Russiagate fear really improve their careers. Rachel Maddow got like a $30 million contract. Nina Jankowicz, who claims to be a disinformation expert, got a job with the now defunct Department of Homeland Security Governance Board, which was going to manage online information. Adam Schiff is now running for the U.S. Senate in California. He was a huge Russiagator who time and time again misled the public about what evidence they did and didn't have. And looking back now, you know, with fresh eyes from 2023, we can see that the overwhelming majority of the stories associated with Russia were baseless or or false. And the problem with that becomes is we could have lived in an alternative history for the last six, seven, eight years. One where maybe we looked at the Hillary Clinton campaign and said, what did they do wrong? How did they let a, a political novice game show host win an election? Maybe that should have been the question versus hunting for Russians under every bed. Rather than looking what was wrong with Russia-Donald Trump connection, which didn't exist, perhaps we should have been looking at what's wrong with our own country that someone like Donald Trump can become president. These are the kind of things we could have been focused on, but instead we were looking for Russians under every bed and in every closet for nearly the last decade.
0: Nolan Higdon, in January 2023, so just a month or so ago, a little bit over that, the Washington Post coverage of a study they did a coverage of a study arguing that the post-2016 coverage of the Russian election meddling may have been overblown. And of course, we writing about that it revealed a corrosive trend in the legacy media where the personalities and outlets that perpetuate inaccurate or false news are rewarded. And those who are trying to tell the truth about what they're exposing around these issues are always marginalized or ostracized. So we've certainly seen that around Russiagate, particularly with a couple of one-time prominent journalists that were held in great esteem by people on the left or the liberal class that are now being mischaracterized and attacked in many ways when not outright ignored. The two people I'm talking about are Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald, and I know I'm imagining there's people in the audience right now that are either cheering or wincing. But I want to get away from that binary here because that plays into the legacy media game. We're right, you're wrong no matter what. They never make any mistakes. Or if they did, they seemed like they knew it all along or blew it. I'm not here to say, and I know you're not either, that we agree with everything that a Taibi or a Greenwald writes or says. But Aaron Maté, Abby Martin, Lee Fang, Brianna Joy Gray, Alan McLeod, even us at Project Censored, you and I in several articles and books, we tried to show a balance in the story, not a false balance, but acknowledge where there is something there and, and then calling out how much isn't there. No matter how much the corporate media spin it and create a cottage industry out of it, as you mentioned, where they're making hand over fist money, and they're also shaping policy. I mean, the Russiagate issue is not just about the 2016 election that helped spark the moral panic of fake news. It's been a year since Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine and the U.S. political establishment, the Democrats, have been Sending $200 billion over to Ukraine. And again, this is not about being a Putin apologist, just to say that there are many reasons to whip up frenzy, hatred, and fear of the Russians. We just saw it again with the Chinese shooting down a balloon. This is kind of by design and part of a propaganda campaign. So could you talk a little bit more about that? You know, basically, like how some of these people are being attacked and marginalized and then let's just go to the real issue of the propaganda and let's say that too that deconstructing it or calling it out does not make anyone an apologist for putin
2: doesn't make them an apologist for what's happening in ukraine this is why um history and critical thinking are, are so important I go back to as we've written about in multiple in books at this point yeah if you go back and look at it initially the questions from folks like us and the journalists you named and other scholars we weren't drawing conclusions we weren't saying that you know, this is total nonsense and Russia did nothing. We were saying like, okay, you're making these large claims about Russia did, but you're not presenting any evidence to support it. And until you provide that evidence, I'm not going to agree with you. And the so-called evidence kept coming from anonymous intelligence sources. It kept coming from classified government reports. And those of us who've studied history know that, look, intelligence agencies in the U.S. government have lied historically over and over again. It's completely moronic to believe them at their word. So we were just asking questions, and that's really when I started to get freaked out. In 2017, 2018, when I was just asking for the evidence, and I was getting censored and called a conspiracy theorist, that's when I started to freak out. I was like, I'm not even drawing a conclusion or telling people what happened here. I'm asking basic questions about what evidence you have to support these conclusions. And that was kind of the chilling effect. If you were a scholar asking those questions, you, you got dismissed or locked out. Whereas if you were a scholar who Russia gated, like Kathleen Hall Jameson, where she wrote her book where she said that Russia was behind the news media cycle as if CNN doesn't control its own news media cycle, Putin does. Those people have made their careers that they were able to to get their books on um, legacy media networks. But those who are just asking basic questions about evidence were dismissed. And then there's a whole group of other people that I think we should also give credit to as well, which was like Yokai Bankler and his crew, which was another group of scholars who looked at the motivation behind how people voted in 2016, and they said, look, we are digital propaganda experts. This, this is what we study. And even with all of our data, and they had volumes of data, we conclude that cable news was still the most decisive factor in how people voted. So the online content showed no effect on how people voted in their study. And then you know, here in 2023, Columbia University confirms that finding. And again, all the time we wasted with gating, while there were these scholars either asking questions about evidence or presenting evidence to show an alternative narrative were silenced.
0: Nolan, I'm glad you pointed this out because we've cited it before and I want to let our listeners know. Yochai Bankler, Robert Ferris, Hal Roberts, Harvard University folks, and they published a book called Network Propaganda, Manipulation, Disinformation, and Radicalization in American Politics. And that's from several years ago, that book, by the way. We've actually done our own research here at Project Censored. So looking back at this, you know, Emil Marmel and Lee Major did a whole chapter in a book with us on the Trojan horse of fighting fake news in the name of this moral panic. It really paved the way for networks to just keep repeating things without evidence or selected evidence and ignore any critics.
2: I just want to give a shout out to Emile on that because Emil and I were, were on the academic conference circuit at the same time. And I was present in the room a lot of times when he presented those findings, again, data driven to ask the question, like, can anybody prove that these ads by Russia had an effect just for asking that question? He was dismissed. He was laughed out of the room quite often. And he wasn't you know, drawing any radical conclusion. He was asking questions about the absence of evidence. That was the culture that we were living in at that time and I think so much of the history that comes out now post 2020 about Russia gate ignores how people were treated in that time period to say it was more debatable or it was more open that wasn't the case.
0: That gets to another term that we have here in the latest piece from Russia gate with love, the shifting baseline, the moving of the goalposts. Revisionist histories. I do want to point to Emil's study The Fake News, The Trojan Horse for Silencing Alternative News and Reestablishing Corporate News Dominance. By the way, all the pieces that we're referencing now are available for free at ProjectCensor.org. And what you said is striking because the corporate media is only, once again, selectively going back and looking at the past. They want to ignore those kinds of issues and pretend that there weren't people calling it out all along. They're pretending that the banklers at Harvard, all the work that we were doing, Emil was doing, many of the other journalists I just mentioned were doing. They want to pretend like that wasn't happening.
2: Yeah. And um, you know, this is I know this is a lesson, Mickey, you've you've learned probably numerous times, but I recall when I was finding my political I- identity, recognizing that the propaganda about the 2003 invasion of Iraq was nonsense, and there weren't WMDs. Only to find out, you know, years later, everyone acted like everyone knew there weren't WMDs, and nobody had ever said that there were. And it it didn't seem like this large deal all of a sudden. Where in 2002, 2003, I was called a traitor and told America love it or leave it, et cetera, et cetera. And I know you were as well. We I felt the same way about RussiaGate. Now they're trying to treat it like, oh, it was always a debatable issue. There was always some truths and some falsehoods. And we we talked about it at the time. That's simply not what happened. If you had any questions about the RussiaGate narrative, you were attacked on a multitude of levels for being pro-Putin or on the Russian payroll or being a sexist for not supporting Hillary Clinton or being a conspiracy theorist, whatever it was.
0: And just recently, you know, you and I unfortunately also have experiences of being censored by both publishers and news outlets because we bother to mention a few people and suddenly you're in the tank for Musk or in the tank with Putin. And, you know, those are just rhetorical tactics. Straw person, red herring, ad hominem attacks, appeals to emotion, appeals to patriotism, etc. It's not always easy to call those things out, as you just pointed out to be the contrarian or to be the person that's skeptical, not cynical, but skeptical of claims until they're proven. And we're going to take a brief musical break. But after that, I want to get into some of the details of what those facts are. And I want to revisit the idea of the shifting baselines, moving goalposts, and who's really guilty of committing revisionist history. We're speaking with media scholar Nolan Higdon. We'll continue our conversation after this brief musical break. Stay with us. you're listening to The Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this segment, we are joined by Dr. Nolan Higdon, media scholar, author, and co-author of numerous books on media literacy, including The Anatomy of Fake News, United States of Distraction, Podcaster's Dilemma, many, many more. And of course, before we're done today, Nolan's going to give information about where you can go to follow his work on Substack and other places. But Nolan Higdon, before the break, we were just unpacking some of the issues going on around Russiagate and these new, allegedly new realizations, at least new to the Washington Post, that, oh, well, new studies show that maybe Russia was overblown. Maybe we overblue some of these stories. And of course, in the latest piece that we did called From Russiagate with Love, corporate media spin and revisionist reporting on Russia's alleged meddling in the 2016 election continue. First, the alleged meddling, meddling did occur. The point was is that there wasn't evidence to show what the meddling did, what the outcome was. And all studies that were done, academic studies that were done that weren't connected to the Senate or weren't connected to some overt political entity were basically saying, like, there's not a smoking gun in any of this. Now, of course, when we call out the press failures, there was a really stellar piece, Columbia Journalism Review, that was done just recently that we call attention to by Jeff Gerth, investigative reporter there, that people really should look at because it looks at the media's failures on this issue. And then, not long after Gerth had that piece published, Vox published basically what was kind of like a damage control piece, if not a hit piece, by Andrew Prokop. Prokop goes on to accuse these other journalists of revisionist history when it's in fact people like Procop and The Post that are actually the ones guilty of the revisionist history themselves. I know that's a lot to unpack here, but that's why we have you on because you've been writing about this in books, articles, you've been following this for years. And that's one of the things that a lot of folks don't want to accept is that there's a lot of information in detail here that if you're only skimming on the surface, you're probably going to succumb to some of the establishment propaganda because it takes a lot of digging to find the things that they didn't want you to see.
2: Yeah, like so many of our op-eds, this one was created out of deep frustration with what we were reading in Vox from uh, Mr. Prokop. But the ProCop article created this straw man argument for those who questioned, not denied, questioned RussiaGate. And then it went on to to retell the, the history. So first it said that what ProCop called deniers of RussiaGate, that they denied any Russian involvement in like US communications during the election period. And that's just false. And so we went back. We went back and cited those articles, cited those interviews to illustrate that that was false. Then they rightly pointed out that a lot of the early falsehoods, including the theory that Trump was a Manchurian candidate, which the article also rightly said there was no evidence for, came from the Steele dossier, which was a dossier created on rumors that were used by the Republican primary candidates and then Hillary Clinton to try and take down Trump. This is where the information that would be used in the media cycle that come in the next five years, because BuzzFeed made the historic decision to publish the thing online. So you had a bunch of media users reading this stuff, not verifying it. And the news media, rather than dismiss this thing, actually amplified it. And this is where I think in particular, the Vox article really misses an opportunity. It, it acts like that was the only false reporting. And then afterward, there was only nuanced reporting. And it, it points to a couple articles in legacy media like the New York Times that were skeptical of Russiagate. But this is a lesson in media literacy. The great scholarly icon Bell Hooks reminds us that when you look back historically, you can always pull some story or text that's an outlier. But if you use that as the foundation for how you look at the time period, you're going to mislead audiences. It's really about what's going on in the media largely. What's the larger narrative? Don't cherry pick outliers. So imagine if you looked Historically, you looked at something like slave culture in the United States. Maybe you could find one nice act by one slave owner on one day, but that hardly is any positive narrative you could draw from that about slave owners. Right? It would be the same sort of illogical assumption. So Fox pulls a couple of these articles out to say there were nuanced arguments. The article goes on to lie and says, we have proof that Russia hacked the DNC emails. And it cites an indictment from the federal government. But two years later, a declassified interview shows that the evidence the federal government had was from an organization called CrowdStrike, which admitted under oath and continues to admit on their website that they had no concrete evidence to illustrate who, if anybody, hacked those emails. It only had indications. So it's false to say in the article that we actually know beyond a shadow of a doubt. We don't in that sense. But the thing I find most interesting... The Vox article acts like once Trump was elected, all of the coverage was nuanced, and we put up a pretty substantive list of false stories that were published in major news outlets. And Just to give audiences an idea, these are all false. Russia hacked a Vermont power plant, put a bounty on U.S. soldiers, shifted election outcomes around the world. Trump was a Russian asset since 1987. Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller communicated there was a Trump-Russian connection without saying there was a connection. All the reporting about the walls were closing in on Trump. They never closed in. The RT hacked C-SPAN. That was a story that proper not identified hundreds of websites controlled by Russia. I could go on and on. That 17 intelligence agencies concluded that the 2016 cyber attacks derived from the Kremlin or that Russia created the Hunter Biden laptop story. Again, all these things time and time again were proven false. But the public was hearing these stories one right after the other on, on programs like Rachel Maddow. And they were never corrected. And one of the things we really saw that is journalistic malpractice is, you know, historically, journalists have always made errors. That's part of the job. Anybody claims that that news media are, are somehow doing something nefarious because they make an error. That's not true. Every journalist makes errors. But they always gave you corrections in the paper. That's how they built credibility. We started seeing the last couple of years. I mean, this is like Washington Post, New York Times. They either leave articles up that have been proven false or edit them without telling you there's a correction. And so now we have a serious problem where the the so-called paper of record can't be trusted as a paper of record because it doesn't document whether or not changes have occurred.
0: Yeah, this is pretty remarkable overall and in fact, we actually looked at when it comes to things like, you know, meddling in the press and so on, we actually saw some of the same you mentioned Crowdstrike, We saw some of the same organizations used by the Senate Intelligence Committee that were themselves committing acts of of, of trying to spin elections or to uh, sway the public by manipulating information in the Alabama Senate race a number of years ago. I mean, again, it's it's interesting that some of the accusations that are being made against the you know critics of, of Russia gate, are actually things that some people in the establishment press or in these intel organizations are actually doing
2: themselves to manipulate narratives. It's a rare day where I'm going to defend the intelligence agencies, but actually in some cases, some people in government claim the intelligence agencies said stuff they didn't. Adam Schiff, remember, said that from his classified intelligence committee hearings that he had evidence that Russia was putting a bounty on U.S. soldiers And then the head of national intelligence in the United States said, actually, that's not true. We don't have any evidence to confirm that. So even politicians were subscribing things to the intelligence community the intelligence community didn't say as well. So there's plenty of blame to go around here. And I think that's kind of one of the most fascinating parts of Russiagate. There seemed to be no accountability. The very people in the intelligence community who misled or lied, the very politicians who misled or lied, and the people in media who misled or lied, they've actually had their careers advanced, while the people who raise questions or acted as truth-tellers have largely been marginalized from a lot of the, the dominant mass media discourses.
0: So this shows how challenging these issues are. And I know anybody that has kind of wandered in, into the fray around Russiagate, ...quickly sees that there's lines drawn, and, and certainly in the liberal class, it's just been a de facto position, like a default position. You and I, and many of the people that we know and work with, even saw divisions in media literacy communities among scholars. There are some, quote, media literacy scholars that really just bought Russia Gate. This is a way to teach people how the media is manipulated from Russia... And then there's another group that's saying like, wait a minute, now you're doing the same thing that you're claiming they're doing by not looking at the evidence and you're distorting the narrative. So let's get back to this. Critical media literacy is the antidote, not proper, not, not NewsGuard, not Atlantic Council, not the so-called corporate fact checkers from the uh, intel agencies. Let's wrap up in the next few minutes here. Let's talk about how critical media literacy education can really help people navigate these complicated, noisy uh, landscapes, these complicated
2: topics. Our best bet at this point is to, like you mentioned, teach individuals to be able to evaluate this content on their own. That's the best hope we have. Sending it out to other organizations is is too much of a conflict of interest. We've seen that NATO is working with the Center for Media Literacy to try and develop pro-NATO content. The Atlantic Council is working with Facebook to moderate content. We know Twitter has worked with Big Pharma, both political parties and the U.S. government to moderate content. There's too much conflict of interest in, in things like that. Whereas as individuals, we have the capability to evaluate content. That's what critical media literacy is all about. We believe users can be empowered to make these determinations on their own so they don't need outside entities. So who published the content? What are their conflicts of interest? Who's the supposed journalist? Are they a journalist? What's their conflict of interest? What are their sources? What other sources might be out there? What is the narrative they're trying to tell? What is the context in which it's being published? These are things to consider. And I know some people may be at home listening to this thinking like, gosh, that's a lot of work. At some level it is, but you start to realize that you have to spend more time with less content. You can't be on outrage about everything and know everything all the time. You can't pretend to read everything, watch everything, listen to everything. You have to to focus on certain things spend substantive time with them and, and really investigate them before you can claim that you know what is going on. And you're part of the fake news problem when you just react and share and you don't investigate. You're part of the fake news problem when you just share everything online that you see or agree with. I encourage audiences, critical media literacy does, be extra skeptical when it's something you agree with. That's usually the best propaganda feeds into your biases. And so you really want to check yourself first before you start finger wagging and scolding people you disagree with.
0: Good journalism, as you write, does not need to keep changing or backpedaling claims to fit a preordained conclusion. We don't need to, to shift baselines. We don't need to be moving goalposts. You know, good journalism just needs to follow the facts wherever they may lead, and perhaps that creates a lot of cognitive dissonance, but that's something that maybe we can help each other with in the process of, of learning how to communicate about these often not binary but complicated issues. Nolan Higdon, please tell our listeners, where can they follow your work? Where can, where can they get in contact with you?
2: I'm at nolanhigdon.substack.com, and you can always find my other work at, all my work at projectcenter.org, and I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and all the, the social medias.
0: Just like with this radio show on community radio across the country, we like to make it as available as possible and free. There's no paywalls. There's no additional hurdles, because as you just heard Nolan Higdon say, it is a lot of work to keep up with this stuff. It's a lot of time that needs to be spent to think carefully and critically and even those of us that do it on a supposedly expert level as educators, as scholars, we all make mistakes too. And it's important that, as you mentioned, to, to call not to call out, uh, uh, but call into the conversation and try to, try to have intelligent dialogue about what we might be missing about uh, the things we're doing and saying and, and, and offer some correctives. You know, We have a lot to teach each other, but we also have a lot to learn from each other. And I think situations and uh, the, the topics like Russiagate, it's just yet another, uh, often like, like COVID narratives, it's, it's an opportunity where people build walls instead of bridges. And uh, I think critical media literacy education is, is the key to building those bridges, understanding each other, and really trying to find the truth. So Nolan Higdon, thanks so much for all the work you do. And thank you again for joining us on the Project Censored show today.
2: Thank you so much, Mickey and everybody.
0: conditions not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians because they own my special that their campaign. That's why you've been listening to the project censored show established in 2010 by myself along with peter phillips i'm the executive producer mickey huff of this program anthony fest our senior producer thanks to you our listeners for tuning in we'll see you next time